Hello there, and welcome to episode 24 of the Biome Podcast. I am Graham, your host, and this is the podcast all about zoology and ecology. We'd like to thank everyone who purchased merchandise recently. Over half of all the profits of the merchandise is going to Saving the Survivors Rhino Rescue. If you haven't purchased your merchandise yet, make sure to check out our store at thebiompodcast.com. We have more collections dropping soon as well, so sign up for our newsletter and you won't miss a single thing. I do want to make an announcement. This is the final episode of Season 1 of the podcast. I want to thank everyone who has supported it throughout the first year and continue to support it. It really means a lot to everyone here. There will be a three-month break, but the podcast will be back on the 7th of January 2023 with all new animals and content. That's really exciting and we are looking forward to building out the podcast and our resources a bit more, which is what the three months are going to be used for. If you want to keep up to date with the latest at Biome, sign up for our emails at thebiomepodcast.com. I honestly can't believe that we've made it through the first year. It's been huge and has been an absolute blast. Now, back onto the, the topic. Let's look at the trivia question for the last episode. I asked the trivia question, what types of animals are found within the order Hymenoptera? The answer is bees, wasps, ants, and sawflies. Translating the name Hymenoptera, we get membrane wings, which is pretty apt for the group. Some species are incredible flyers, but the wings are very much like membranes, hence the name. This week, I would like to congratulate Mark Zagarek, Garrett Utilar, and Amanda Wehill for getting the right answer. As for this week's trivia question, there won't be one, as it's the end of the season. Instead, I want to invite you to send some of your coolest animal facts that absolutely blow your mind, as well as any suggestions for what we should change for season two. You can send them through the website at thebiomepodcast.com. And if you want, or if you prefer, feel free to email them to questions at thebiompodcast.com. I just wanted to remind you that you can visit the site and sign up for our newsletter so you don't miss a single episode. And you can read our field notes while you're there. There will also be announcements for when Season 2 is launched. So make sure you sign up, as well as a few giveaways that we're planning on doing over the next three months. So, let's jump straight in to today's show. Welcome to the Animal Spotlight the section where we dive into the lives of a species on this planet and explore what life means to them, really. For this final episode of the first season, we have a community suggestion. There are two species of black bear, but we'll talk about the most common species in this episode, the American black bear. The other species is the fairly closely related Asiatic black bear, also known as the moon bear or the white-chested bear due to the white V on the chest of the animal. 
Interestingly, there are also some occurrences of the American black bear having a white bee on their chest as well. Which, I mean, they are closely related, so it shouldn't be that surprising. Both the Asian black bear and the American black bear are more closely related to each other than any other species of bears. Or than to any other species of bears, rather. This is despite the fact that they actually look surprisingly different. Recent studies suggest that the sun bear could also be closely related to the moon bear and the American black bear. I know that sounds like a joke, the sun bear and the moon bear being closely related, but it is actually legit. As amusing as it is, rather. The American black bear is a medium-sized bear. And while we normally talk about a weight at this point, it's a bit harder to nail down in bears. They are sexually dimorphic, like a lot of other mammals. The males are generally larger than the females. The males can range from between 57 to 250 kilograms, or between 126 to 550 pounds. Now, that's a massive range. And the females aren't any better. They will typically range from between 41 to 170 kilograms, or 90 to 375 pounds. A bear's weight will vary depending on the habitat that they live in, the age of the animal, and even the time of year. Black bears' weights can vary by as much as 30% from when they enter hibernation in the fall and emerge from hibernation in the spring. This is a huge amount of weight loss and not an easy thing for any organism to go through. The American black bear follows something called Bergman's rule, which states that within a widely distributed taxonomic clade or group, such as the American black bear in this case, populations and sizes of creatures are larger in colder regions and smaller in warmer regions. This means that the larger individuals of the American black bear population are generally found in the colder northern regions of their range, while the smaller individuals are found in the southern regions. There are many mammals and birds that follow this rule, but likewise there are also numerous instances where the rule is broken. It just so happens to be valid in the case of the American black bear though. The fact that larger individuals or populations can be found in the northern reaches of the range could have something to do with thermal inertia. It's a concept where larger animals have a greater mass with which to store heat, but a relatively smaller surface area from which to lose that heat. So they hold on to it for longer. This means that endotherms, who have a significantly higher core temperature than the surrounding environment generally, have to work less to maintain the difference. This works on the other hand as well. The smaller an animal, the quicker it can lose heat. Therefore, the smaller bears in the heat of the southern regions can lose heat at a faster rate when they start getting too warm. Okay, enough about that. Let's go back to black bears. They generally live in largely forested areas, but have been known to leave that environment for a few reasons including the immediate availability of food around human communities. One idea that explores this type of environment um, for the bears is that they historically shared... When I'm talking about this type of environment, I'm talking about the, the largely forested areas. Um, one idea that 
explores why they are usually found within largely forested areas is that they historically shared territory with the giant short-faced bear and subsequently the um, brown or grizzly bear. The theory is that being smaller than these other two species, they were forced into habitats where the larger species weren't around. This also allowed them to be more arboreal or tree-based than the grizzlies or the short-faced bears are believed to have been. They're also extremely dexterous, meaning they can unscrew a screw-top jar and even open doors. They have great physical strength as well. A bear weighing 54 kilograms or 120 pounds was observed turning flat rocks um, weighing between 141 to 147 kilograms or about 310 to uh, 325 pounds, so almost three times their body weight. And they turned these flat rocks by flipping them over and they used only a single foreleg. There is no way I personally could lift three times my body weight with just my arms. American black bears also have great eyesight and they this has been proven experimentally and they have been proven experimentally to be able to learn visual color discrimination tasks faster than chimpanzees and about just as fast as domestic dogs. They're also capable of rapidly learning to distinguish different shapes, such as small triangles, circles, and even squares. There are currently 16 different subspecies, although that may change due to recent genetic analysis it hasn't yet and there are still 16. The type subspecies or the subspecies that describes the species as a whole is the eastern black bear. It's found from eastern Montana to the Atlantic coast. It's also found in eastern Canada and parts of Texas. It is one of the largest subspecies. There is a subspecies known as the cinnamon bear which lives around that area as well, in western Montana and eastern Washington. And like the name suggests, these bears are not actually black, but instead have a reddish-brown coloration. It has been proposed that the reddish-brown coloration mimics that of a grizzly bear, which could make sense. I personally haven't seen any evidence that it helps the animal um, to have this coloration so I would need to look into that more to be able to sort out the validity however it is a very interesting theory another interesting subspecies is the glacier bear they are listed as a subspecies by the US Department of Agriculture Forestry Service but they may be in fact just a different color morph rather than a full subspecies like the cinnamon bear, the glacier bear isn't in fact black. Instead, it is a silver fox, I mean, um, a bear. Um, but it's the silver fox, well, sorry, silver bear of the black bear community. They are sometimes referred to as the blue bear since their coloration is instead a gray, a bluish gray to silver. They're found in the southern parts of Alaska and the northern parts of British Columbia, where they have a tendency to um, camouflage themselves pretty well within the glaciers. Probably the most famously, or the most famous differently colored subspecies of the black bear 
is the commode bear, also known as the spirit bear. That is because the bears are actually light blonde. They're found on Van north of Vancouver Island, um, and they look almost like albino bears, except that they aren't. They are, in fact, just lightly colored. The interesting part is that only 10% of the species, or of the subspecies rather, have the blonde coloration, while the other 90% of the subspecies have the regular black color. This means that it's not just the color that determines the subspecies. So there are a lot more differences than just a color variation. However, for now, we'll leave it there and we'll explore the commode beds in a field note um, and we'll list all the differences that they have. For now though, we'll call it quits on the animal spotlight section. Let's jump into the technical section. Now it's time to look into a bit of a different side of zoology. It's now time for the technical section. Instead of exploring a particular animal, let's look into a concept, theory, idea, or event found in the animal kingdom. In episode two, which was released on October 21st of last year, so 11 months ago, we spoke about an interesting topic called estivation. For those who don't remember, it is defined as when an animal enters a state of reduced activity and slower metabolism to get through times of excessively high temperatures and possibly low food as well. It is a state that some species of lungfish, for example, enter to survive dry patches when their ponds or watering holes dry up. The lungfish will actually dig into the mud and surround itself with a mucus cocoon to prevent itself from drying out. Well, today, 22 episodes later, and at the end of season one of the Biome podcast, we'll talk about the opposite of estivation. We'll talk about hibernation. A lot of people have a basic idea of what hibernation is. Bears and other animals will go to sleep for the winter. Well, yes, that is technically correct. If not a bit of a simplification. Hibernation is actually characterized by low body temperature, slow breathing and a heart rate, as well as low metabolic rate. The definition of the term has evolved over time to become a catch-all for various types of dormancy found throughout the animal kingdom. It now basically refers to any act of metabolic suppression um, in the winter months or during cold periods. So let's start our exploration of hibernation with um, the different types of hibernators. Obligate hibernators are animals that enter hibernation regardless of the weather or food availability. They reach a point in the year and they just have to hibernate. Hedgehogs, for example, are obligate hibernators. Um, so even if the autumn is quite warm and they don't really need to hibernate just yet, they still will. Other obligate hibernators are rodents, insectivores, monotremes like the echidna, and even some species of marsupials. One thing I do love about hibernation, and this is a bit off topic, but still, and something that I'll always remember, is the fact that the den or location that an animal will hibernate in is called a hibernaculum. Man, I love that word, hibernaculum. 
Okay, back to the podcast. Um, the interesting part about obligate hibernators is that their body temperature drops to near ambient temperatures. For example, the Arctic ground squirrel's head and neck will remain at about 0 degrees Celsius, or about 32 degrees Fahrenheit. But their abdominal area may actually drop below that to about minus 3 degrees Celsius, or about 27 degrees Fahrenheit. This means that parts of their body could be below freezing. During the winter, most obligate hibernators will go through periods of hibernation and periods where they wake up. During these periods of wakefulness, their body temperature will rise to close to normal levels, as will their heart rates. The purpose of these periods of wakefulness isn't exactly known yet, but there are a few theories floating around. A few of those theories are that while the animal is not really awake, it's not actually sleeping either, and a lot of the processes that occur in sleep still need to take place. So the animal has to wake up and sleep before heading back into hibernation. This could also be triggering immune responses for a myriad of other body processes. Another theory is that the animal has to replenish its energy reserves by possibly eating something. These are just theories at the moment though. The other type of hibernator is the facultative hibernator. They go into hibernation only once they are cold stressed, food deprived, or both. This type of hibernation can be seen in a number of animals, including some species of chipmunks and prairie dogs. But what about bears, though? Which type of hibernator are they? Well, they aren't actually true hibernators. They fall into the looser definition of hibernation, their body temperature only drops to, uh, sorry, it only drops about five or six degrees Celsius. They do enter deep sleep, but their body processes don't drop nearly as much as true hibernators. For example, black bears will give birth while in their dens. Their bodies will still produce milk for the youngsters as well, and depending on the environment, black bears will hibernate for anywhere from three to eight months. There are even places in the southern US and Mexico where only the pregnant females will enter hibernation and the males won't at all. In true hibernators, the animals generally don't defecate or urinate while hibernating. You can imagine the issues that would arise if they did that while out cold. The reason they don't is that there is no solid waste passing through the digestive tract, so there's nothing for them to defecate. Even with the extremely slow metabolism, however, the cells still produce waste. In this case, the urea is recycled and instead converted into amino acids, which are the building blocks of proteins in the cells. Now, so far we've discussed mammals, but what about other groups, such as birds, for example? Previously, people used to think that instead of migrating, birds would hibernate during the winter. Specifically, swallows were thought to hibernate. We now know that they migrate great distances. Most birds don't actually hibernate. In fact, it has only been found in one bird species, and that is the common poor will. The common poor will is found in the Rockies of British Columbia and Alberta, 
and south of that. Even then, it's not found in all common poor worlds. So not all common poor worlds will actually hibernate. The most northern birds will actually fly south, but those on the southern borders of their summer range will stay over winter instead choosing to enter a hibernation state that can last for three, uh, sorry, for weeks or even months. Now, hummingbirds enter a type of dormancy that is very similar to hibernation, but they don't do it for nearly as long. Instead, due to the incredible metabolism of the hummingbird, they enter their semi-hibernation state basically every night, just to survive the night. If they don't, their metabolism would cause them to starve to death before the night ends. And because of their incredible metabolism, they require high caloric foods such and eat nectar from flowers, for example. So you can imagine how those can't be found during the day. I mean, sorry, during the night. So the bird needs to sleep. And to do that, it needs to slow down its metabolism or else it will starve to death. Reptiles too enter a similar state of hibernation. It's not called hibernation though because a lot of the bodily functions are completely different. Instead, they enter a state called brumation. One particular difference between brumation and hibernation is that while reptiles won't eat um, while their body temperatures are so low, they do still require water and will wake up um, to be able to have a drink, which is a very strange thing to do when you're um, when you think about hibernation. I think we're going to end the technical section there. The, we might look at other ways um, animals get through winter in a subsequent episode or in a field note. Not 100% sure yet, but we'll look into that and let you know. And I think that is where we'll wrap up the technical section for today. If you're looking for some merch while helping an incredible cause, go and have a look at the site at thebiompodcast.com. All the designs are minimalist and unobtrusive. Every product is also eco-friendly, with the majority of it being 100% cotton and the rest being recycled material. I personally wear the hat to the gym almost every single day. Now, that is the end of the show today, but before we head off, I just want to remind you that this is also the end of Season 1. Stay tuned and sign up for our newsletter to find out when Season 2 will be launched, as well as get reminders and possibly sneak peeks and possibly giveaways, which would probably come in handy during the um, holiday season coming up. Also, make sure you visit our site and sign up for the newsletter so you don't miss a single episode and feel free to read our field notes while you're there. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review. They are always appreciated. And let us know what you want to see more of in Season 2. I hope you have a great time ahead of you. And I will see you in the next episode. Make sure you follow us on social media as well. Pretty active on Instagram. For now though, don't forget to ask questions. It's the foundation of science, after all. <laughs>